Father, as we come to this passage again this morning, we are seeing more insights into what it means when Jesus says that he came to seek and save the lost. We are seeing new insights as to just how lost we can really be. And yet, we can never be so lost that we can't be found by our Savior. Help us to see that this morning. Amen. So last Sunday we met this younger son in, in uh, Jesus' parable. And, and we saw how he represented what it means to be spiritually lost in immoralism. And we also saw what it means to repent and to be found out of that immoralism. It's not a turning from immoralism to moralism as though the way back to God is to stop breaking the rules and then we start trying really hard to keep them. And then if we keep them hard, uh, well enough and if we work hard enough, then, then, then we earn our way back into His good graces. That is not what we're turning from and turning to. We're turning from immoralism, yes, but we're turning to grace. Which is, as we're gonna see this morning, antithetical to that other option, namely moralism. And in that sense, moralism really isn't any better in terms of a relationship with God than immoralism. And that is just the point Jesus is going to show us this morning through the story of the older son. Because remember what Jesus says at the beginning of this parable. In verse 11, he says, there was a man who had two sons. Uh, Most of the time we focus in this parable just on that first son, but really the focus is on the second son. The first son is contrasting the response of the second son. And these two sons couldn't be more dissimilar, right? One of them leaves home and the other one stays. One of them is extremely immoral in his lifestyle. The other is extremely moral. But at the same time, these two sons couldn't be more alike. Notwithstanding all the differences between their both just as lost, they're both just as alienated from their father. Moralism is just as spiritually bankrupt as immoralism. And and here's how we're going to see that this morning. We're going to exposit the older son's lostness. We're going to do a deep dive into how the older son reveals his alienation from the father. Jesus is just as vivid in his depiction of the older son's lostness as he is the younger's. And then second, we're going to consider who it is that this older son represents in the parable. Because we know these characters represent somebody. We saw last week how the younger son represented people who were lost in immoralism, but we're going to flesh that out more with the older son. And then just briefly at the end, because we're going to spend more time on this next week, we're going to see the father's response. We can't leave the story of the older son without seeing at least some of the father's response. So let's begin then by looking at the lostness of the older son. He was mentioned right at the very outset of the parable. Remember in verses 11 and 12, or verses uh, verse 11, he's, he's got two sons. So he's mentioned at the beginning, but then we don't hear anything from him. And the the question is, where's he been the whole time? 
And, and we're told exactly where he's been the whole time in verse 25. He's been right with the father. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So we don't hear anything from him from verses 11 to verse 25, but there he is, right? He's there. He's living on the father's estate the whole time. He never leaves home. He never runs away. All the while, his younger brother is is lost out in the world. The older brother is right there at home on the estate with the father. But, But here's the major point Jesus is making with this part of the story. Even though the older son stayed, he is still just as lost, just as alienated from the father as the younger brother that left. And we see that hinted at all the way back at the beginning of the parable. When the younger son begins his rebellion against the father, in verse 12, we know where the older son was. He was there. He was on the estate. But now we need to ask the why question. Why doesn't, at that point, the older son fulfill his family responsibility by stepping in and interceding and defending the honor and the integrity of the father and rebuking the younger brother. Where is the older brother? He doesn't show up until verse 25. We don't hear anything from him. As this this uh, unfolds between the father and the son, he's nowhere to be found. He's nowhere to be found either because he didn't care enough about the father's honor to step in and do anything about it. Or because he was so far removed from the father somewhere else on the estate that he was never even around in the first place. And I suspect it's probably both. And we see that played out in verses 25 to 27. Look with me. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And when he said to him, and he said to him, your younger brother is coming. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And we read that and we think, well, isn't that strange? This is like new information to the older son. You know, he lives on the estate, but he's got no idea what's going on. He's, he's totally clueless as to what this is about. He doesn't know anything about the celebration. He doesn't even know that his brother has returned. The household servants know more about what's going on with the father than the older son does. And I don't think it's because the father refused to send him an invitation. We're going to see that that is exactly what was sent. It's not the father's problem. It's the son's. I mean, why, why, why does he, why is he so clueless? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a large estate, right? This is a wealthy man. 
There's probably lots of acreage here. There's lots of places he could be. Maybe he's far on the other side of the estate because he's chosen to live as far from the father as he can get while technically still being in the family, technically still being on the estate. And the way this reads, it's probably been like that for years. At least going back to the time when the younger son leaves. I mean, you, you, you think of the uh, the relational conflict that exists in some marriages where technically they're married, technically they live together, but they never speak to one another. They, 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 they stay in separate parts of the house. They have separate lives, separate interests, separate, I mean, just strangers passing in the night. That's the relationship between this father and this son. The older son has chosen to distance himself from the father. Which is why we we never hear from him. It's why he doesn't receive the news about his younger brother and about the celebration. He's on the estate, but he does not want a relationship with the father. He's just waiting for the father to die so that he can finally take full possession of his share of the inheritance. It's like all those movies, you know, where the young, attractive woman marries the old, decrepit man and she stays with him and she pretends to, to be a part of it, just, just waiting for him to die so that she can get all the money. And that's basically what we have here, right? He's just waiting for the father to kill over so that he can get really what he wants. He doesn't love the father. He doesn't honor the Father. He doesn't desire relationship with the Father. He doesn't treasure the Father. All he wanted was his share of the inheritance. And the only difference between him and his younger brother is the way that they go about trying to get it. The younger son sought it by leaving. The older son sought it by staying. And in both cases... They didn't want the father. They just wanted the father's stuff. And we see that especially in the older son's reaction to this news. Look at verse 28. When he finds out what the party's all about, look at how he responds. Verse 28. But he, that is the older son, when he finds out about the party, he's angry and he refuses to go in. He's angry about this. He is indignant that the father would throw a celebration for this son. Instead of rejoicing with the father at the brother's return, he despises it. Because he doesn't love the father, right? He doesn't love the things the father loves. The things that invoke in the father's heart a cause for rejoicing and celebration, the older son doesn't want anything to do with it. See how apart their hearts are between the father and the older son? So he refuses to join in the celebration. And, and understand, in, in this day, in this culture, it is a huge public insult to the father for this older son not to come and to join the celebration. To leave the older son's chair patently, obviously empty during the celebration. Imagine, here's the father right at the center of the table. Here's the younger son. And here's the empty chair of the older son. 
And everybody sees exactly the conflict that has been going on and brewing for all this time. A huge public insult. Not only, not only does he not take part in planning the celebration and preparing the celebration, he doesn't come to the celebration and his response and objection to it is so explosive, it's so public, going on, everybody knows what's going on out there. The father has to get up and leave the party to go address the older son. Verse 28, his father came out and entreated him. Another huge embarrassment for the father. A huge insult from the son. But notice he doesn't come out and and smack him, right? And and drive him out and and rail at him. I mean, that's as a father, I I mean, I could see myself doing that, right? Getting so irritated that you are so offended and you in public and you're like, what are you doing? You know? You know? But it's not what he does. Look at what he does. He goes out. He embraces the shame of leaving the party. And he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't harm him. He entreats him. He tries to persuade him to come. He invites him to come to the party. And now for the first time in the story, we get to hear the older son speak. Listen to what he says to his father. Okay, you, you get the image now? You get the image of the father? You see his compassion, you see his mercy, you see his patience? Let's listen to the older son speak, verse 29. But he answered his father, look. And that's the way it would have come out. Uh, that's the way the original would bring it out. It's, it's not father, it's not dad, it's look you. It's a, it's a, it's an address of disrespect. Look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. These are the words of a lost son. Do you hear the disrespect, the contempt that he has for the father? Look you, utterly disrespectful. He's doing this in public. He calls into question the father's love, doesn't he? You never gave me a young goat. Then I might celebrate with my friends. As though the father is withholding good things from his son. As though the father doesn't love the son. As though it's the father's problem that they are estranged. He calls into question the father's love. And by the way, did you notice, um, he doesn't want to celebrate with the father, right? He wants to celebrate with my friends. I want to go off and have my thing. He calls into question the father's love. He calls into question the father's integrity, doesn't he? I've served you in this transaction relationship, in this employer-employee relationship, I put in my hours, I did my end of the bargain, I served you all these years, he's gone out, and he's blown all the money, he didn't do anything to deserve it, and then you give him a party? How unjust could you possibly be? Can't you see he doesn't deserve this party? I'm the one who earned it. 
What kind of unjust father are you giving my shameful brother the things that he doesn't deserve? He's calling into question the father's integrity. And you hear just dripping all over these words his self-righteousness. All these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. That's how he perceives himself. That's what it means for him to have stayed close to the father on the estate. That's how he perceives himself. He's the good moral son. He's the one who's kept all the rules. He's the one who honors the father, except that he really hasn't, has he? He don't want anything to do with his father. Yeah, he stayed, but he's as far away as he can get. He doesn't love the father. He just wants his father's stuff. And when he realizes, and this is why he's so angry, when he realizes how this party is being funded, because remember, the father divided the inheritance. The son's already blown his. The only thing left is the older son's share. And guess whose fattened calf that belongs to? Guess whose paying for this party. It's the older son. His stuff is being threatened. What he really wants is beginning to be taken away from him. And so he speaks and in his words, he shows his indignation, his contempt, his hatred for the father. These are the words of a lost son. Jesus once said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the older son is speaking. And we see exactly what's in his heart. For all of his outward morality, all of his external obedience... In his heart, he's just as immoral, he's just as lost as his younger brother. While very moral on the outside, he is just as lost on the inside. His rebellious, self-righteous heart couldn't be any further from the Father. That is what it means to be lost in moralism. But now we need to ask the question. We know, we know who this son represents. He represents those lost in moralism. But let's be specific. Who would that include? What is Jesus getting at here? Who does the older son represent? And the obvious answer to that question is found in verses 1 to 3. It's the self-righteous religious. Now there were tax collectors and sinners and they were drawing near to hear Jesus. And we saw that they represent the, uh, the, old, the younger son, right? Rather, the younger son represents them. And now here's the group, okay? And the Pharisees and the scribes 
when Jesus begins to minister to the, uh, the, the, the really bad people, the, uh, the, the tax collectors and the, oh, the, the sinners over there, when he begins to minister to them, they get bent out of shape. They grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And so he told them, the Pharisees and the scribes, he told them the parables. And this is Jesus' primary audience, the self-righteous, religious hypocrites of his day. The ones that are very moral on the outside. That's who the older son represents. The religious people who, to use the language of verse 7, and you can look at verse 7, you'll see that language, who, who don't think they need to repent. They see in themselves no need for repentance because they don't see in themselves anything they need to repent of. They think they're doing just fine. At least, comparatively speaking, up against these people, I'm doing pretty good. And so what do I need to repent? Those are the ones that need to repent. That kind of self-righteousness is, is common among all religions. And, and certainly that's true for non-Christian religions because all non-Christian religions are inherently moralistic because all non-Christian religion is essentially a form of self-salvation. It's essentially a form of uh, having the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. And however you define salvation in that religion, basically it amounts to, I just got to earn it. I got to get myself up by my moral bootstraps and I got to have good deeds that outweigh the bad deeds. And if I do good enough, earn it enough, then I'm in. I get the salvation, whatever that might be. That's basically the salvation plan of non-Christian religion. But, and you know this as well as I do, that's not just true of non-Christian religion, is it? Christians can do the exact same thing. There are a lot of churched people who think that's what Christianity basically is. Becoming a Christian is basically leaving one set of moral values and adopting another set of moral values. But the scheme is the same. The, the, the project is the same. We're still earning the salvation. We're still self-saviors. And that's how so many churched people think about Christianity. They they think that's what's at the essence of it. They think Christianity is just another form of moralism, like any of the other world religions. And we know that's how churched people think because that's who Jesus is addressing. That's the target audience of the parable. So certainly, the older son represents the self-righteous religious group. But there's a second group whom the older son can also represent, and that's the self-righteous irreligious. You don't have to be religious to be moral, do you? It's a sad fact, but it's a fact that there are plenty of secular people who act far more moral than some religious people do. You don't have to be religious to be moral. You don't have to be religious to have external good behavior. 
You don't have to be religious to be moral, but that also means you don't have to be religious to be lost in moralism. That's because secularists have their own moral codes, right? And just like religious people, they can take a great deal of pride in following and adhering to their own moral code. And just like religious people, they can feel the same sense of moral superiority over other people who don't. In fact, there's a, there's a buzzword that's come up in recent years, and you'll see it all over the place in the news media and other places. And it almost always refers to secularists, and it's the phrase virtue signaling. And here's a definition of virtue signaling. It's defined as the sharing of one's point of view on a social or political issue, often on social media, in order to garner praise or acknowledgement of one's righteousness from others who share that point of view, or to passively rebuke those who don't. That's a, that's a very good definition. I read several of them. They all have those same things in common, but that one's very good. It is everywhere on social media, everywhere in the news. Even, even big companies use virtue signaling in their marketing strategy. They want to align themselves with a particular set of moral values, and they want everybody to see that they have aligned themselves with those particular moral values so that when the people see that they've aligned themselves with those particular moral values, they might be praised for it. They might be more liked, more accepted. If I fall in line with these particular values, I'll have the friends I want, I'll have the recognition I want, the praise I want. So that's one side of the virtue signaling coin. The other side is how they treat people who don't have those values. They look down on them. They blast them. They grumble at them. They post Twitters about them. Tweets, whatever, you know what I mean. The point is, it is not an inherently religious phenomenon. We even have buzzwords describing it, right? Both the religious and the irreligious can be lost in moralism. And the signs of that kind of lostness are fairly easy to identify. Let me just give you a few that you can use in your own life to identify that that tendency toward moralism. Every time we look down our nose at somebody who doesn't live up to our moral standards, you understand that's moralism. Every time we hear about somebody in the news committing some vile crime and we say to ourselves, I could never do that. I'm above that. That would never be me. Every time we think that, that's moralism. Every time we get bent out of shape and somebody gets something that they didn't really deserve, didn't really earn, that's moralism. Every time we think that we're more important than somebody else, that's moralism. Every time we refuse to accept correction, because how could I possibly be wrong? That's moralism. Every time we do something virtuous, For the express purpose of having other people see us do it and to like us for doing it. That's moralism. 
Here's a big one. Every time we withhold compassion and forgiveness from other people, it's moralism. And all of us are guilty of that kind of self-righteous moralism to one degree or another. And any of us, if we're deep enough in that self-righteousness, may actually be lost in it. But none of us are without hope. And that is what we see in the Father's response to the older son. We're going to look at this, Lord willing, in a lot more detail next week. So I'm just going to scratch the surface here. Just a quick glimpse at what we'll see in more detail next week. Because we can't leave on that note. We've got to see something of the hope in the Father's response. Look briefly at verse 31. Here's the Father. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So do you hear the mercy of the Father. Now, we saw it when he first went out and, and is pleading for him to come in. And then we get the railing of the older son. We see his true heart. But now in response to that, look at, he's still extending mercy. He still addresses him as son. He still gives him all that he has. He still holds out the invitation to come to the celebration. After all of that, from the older son, the offer of mercy is still being extended by the father. In other words, he's still inviting him to repent and to turn from that self-righteousness and to be reconciled. And that's exactly what Jesus is inviting us to do this morning as well. Jesus told this story primarily for us in this room. We, churched people, are the primary audience for Jesus in this parable. He knows our tendency to trust in our moralism, our performance, for acceptance with God. He, he knows our tendency toward this, this duty-based, uh, performance-oriented view of Christianity. This transaction relationship. He knows that we are bent. Our default orientation is away from grace and toward moralism. And this parable is for us to wake up and see it. He's inviting us to repent. He's inviting us, churched people, to turn from self-righteousness and to turn to Him. We are meant to look at this older son and to see a reflection of our own self-righteousness. We're meant to see ourselves doing the same things, thinking the same ways, 
as this moralistic older son. And so I just ask, do, do, you, do you see yourself in this older son? Are you as close to God as maybe you can possibly get on the outside? But then you know inside you're just as far away. Which is to say, are you lost in moralism? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus saves us from moralism. He came to save those who turn from their self-righteousness and trust Him as their righteousness, as their perfect righteousness. A righteousness they can never own and earn on their own. You may have noticed that the older son's story ends with us ever finding out whether he comes to the celebration or not. We don't know if he finally accepts the offer of the Father's grace. That's how his story ends. That is not how your story has to end. Jesus is inviting you with the same compassion, the same mercy that we see in the Father. He's inviting you to turn from moralism and to receive Him and His grace for you this morning. Let's pray. Father, help us to see our need for Jesus. Whether we are lost in immoralism or moralism, help us to see our need for Jesus. Help us to see the Savior that He truly is for sinners that are lost. Amen.